You may have heard that sometimes people have misconceptions about vaccines, what they do and don't do, or how they work. In this episode, we're going to revisit patient misconceptions. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel. This is 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners, an independent health equity-focused communication and education consultancy. Today's episode is sponsored by Maven Roth Group, who thanks our healthcare heroes for their hard work during this difficult time. Maven Roth can help take some of the work off your already full plate because they've been teaming up with hospitals and practices for years, helping them communicate with their audiences through print, social media, and more. Let Maven Roth help you create and share your COVID-19 messaging. Visit mavenroth.com. Now we're getting close to 100 episodes in this podcast series. Wow. Um, And I recently was thinking about one of our first episodes. Um, The very first episode is the series introduction, but the first episode after that is about patient misconceptions. And in light of COVID and the COVID vaccines, I wanted to re-listen to this and see, do I stand by what I said three and a half years ago? I'm going to invite you to do the same. Um, My purpose is, is, is the same. I'm inviting you to think carefully about people's misconceptions. Why? I'm suggesting that if you dismiss them, you're missing out on important information. Now, in this episode, I used examples from OBGYN, but I'll invite you to try it with maybe some misconceptions that you may have heard about vaccines or COVID. See how it goes. Let me know what you think. An OBGYN once shared with me the fact that a few times each year, she encounters an adult patient who has misconceptions about basic female anatomy. I asked her what she meant by that, and she said that some of her patients think that women menstruate and urinate out of the same hole. In a totally separate conversation, an OB patient educator said the same thing to me slightly different language. She said, I'm often saying to patients, our plumbing and our other parts are kind of close together down there. So patients may walk into the encounter with misconceptions about what they're doing there, about what you're doing there, about what's going to happen. They may have misconceptions about treatments or about human anatomy or about how the healthcare system works. They may even have misconceptions about you as a doctor. In the meantime, you're trying to engage patients as well as share important information. Doctors tell me they don't want to let these misconceptions get in the way of a successful encounter and of good patient-provider relationships. Can this be done? Let's look into what misconceptions are, where they come from, and how people could be so stupid. Misconceptions can add to everyone's frustration. They can slow down progress. They can make it harder to build relationships. Researchers are finding that they can have personal health consequences on patients, such as on a patient's willingness to follow a recommended treatment, and public health consequences, such as those surrounding efforts to address global antibiotic resistance. How can misconceptions be so prevalent as research suggests they are? We all have ideas about how the world works, about how things go, or ought to go. We develop these sets of ideas and ways to express them over time. They're based on our own experiences in life, but they're also heavily influenced by our communities, by the groups of which we're a part, and somewhat by society at large. We learn about the world, 
and how to make sense of it from our experiences and from the people around us. What does this have to do with misconceptions? You may have seen articles in popular media about how everyday people understand scientific or technical concepts. Measure us up against the experts, and we almost always score badly. Let me give you an example. Linguist James G. writes about how scientists and everyday people understand the same words and some basic scientific concepts differently. He uses the example of a study involving scientists analyzing school students' answers to questions about the light from a candle. The scientists would ask them, like, how far will the light travel? And the kids would answer, and the scientists would analyze those answers. This study, like many others, concludes that everyday people's understandings of common phenomena, in this case, the light from a candle, are simply unacceptable. G writes, How, you might ask, can people be so stupid? I would argue, he says, that people are not, in fact, so stupid. On one hand, everyday language works at a level of specificity that is entirely adequate for everyday life. But it would not measure up to scientific standards for exactitude. For example, from the candle experiment, G compares the everyday use of the word light with the scientific term illumination. Light can mean many things in everyday use, but each of these meanings is clear to us in context. Only one of them is what's meant by the scientific term illumination. G goes further and points out how in everyday life we are acting and talking as everyday people, and not as specialists. Within the context of everyday life, our language works. We know what someone means when they say light. That is to say, in everyday life, we are not trying to be as correct as specialists for various reasons. And our language and thinking reflect that. Consider the language you use and the time you spend outside your professional context, in everyday life, speaking as an everyday person. Specialized language is, well, for specialists, and it serves different functions than everyday language. It has to, that's why it was developed. It is, by nature, not everyday language. It simply can't be. To get a feel for what it's like to be a non-native speaker of a specialized language, consider interprofessional communication, maybe some education events, when you might have trouble understanding the professional discourse of colleagues in another specialty. They have a specialized language made to accomplish specific tasks and to reflect specific ideas with exactitude. So do you. So let's bring this back to misconceptions. Now, your ideas about how the human body works are much more informed than everyone else's, right? They are built on millennia of research, supported by your study, enriched by your years of experience, and reinforced by your social groups. The rest of us non-experts are also walking around with ideas about how our bodies work. Those ideas may or may not have scientific merit, but just like yours, they are based on our experiences, our knowledge, and our communities, and they are just as cohesive. The good news is, a misconception is a window into a person's thinking, and potentially more. Your expert knowledge means you know enough to find the sense or logic in someone's misconception. In other words, see where they are coming from. 
Your task then is to understand your patient's understanding. Because as nonsensical as it might seem from an expert perspective, whatever your patient thinks makes sense for them. And they're using their language to explain it, language which also makes sense to them and has done a perfectly adequate job to this point. And now you are trying to make sense to them. You're seeking to understand them on their own terms. Without this starting point, communication is utterly disconnected. Let's put this to work with an example. The OBGYN I mentioned at the start later expressed to me her concern that adult females were out of touch with their own bodies. Indeed, there are distressing cultural and social realities that could lead to a woman reaching adulthood and still having her body seem foreign to her. So let's give it a try. Let's consider how, or under what conditions, this particular misconception could make sense. Here's some possibilities for such a patient. One could be, for any number of reasons, perhaps she's never had a good thorough look at her own body. It's not difficult to imagine the cultural pressure against such an act. Another, if she has had a good look, she might not have been clear on what she saw. Like the OB patient educator said to me, our parts are kind of close together down there. And research has found that access to information matters in patient misconceptions. This patient wants to be taken seriously on her own terms. We all do. As the OBGYN and I spoke, it became clear to me that her concern was also over the larger problem of the cultural norms that could keep a woman from knowing her body more accurately. She was reflecting on her years of accumulated examples of women with misconceptions about their reproductive systems. We discussed how such norms might connect to political battles over women's health and socially constructed ideals of womanhood. It's important to remember that cultural norms can include silences, taboos, and secrets. These are not limited to women, of course. Males also encounter cultural silences, as described in a recent article on testicular cancer detection. You attempt to show your patients that you have their best interests at heart. You're going to do this with compassion and all of the wisdom you can muster in order to understand how your patient sees their situation and how this makes sense to them. As the provider and the holder of the expert information, it's part of your job to make the connection between what your patient thinks and what you think. The faster you can see the sense behind what your patient says, the faster you can get on with communication that matters, communication that's going to meet them where they're at, communication that shows respect. Keep in mind that whatever your patient says is related to assumptions or beliefs that they hold, and that these assumptions and beliefs make sense to them. With this in mind, you can begin with their misconceptions and build a bridge between your understandings, regardless of how far away you might feel from them in that moment. In this way, misconceptions could be your secret advantage in patient education and communication. Now, this is a 10-minute podcast episode. Imagine what we could do working together. Let me help your organization. Find me on Twitter, linked, or visit healthcommunicationpartners.com. This has been 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners. I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel. Thanks for listening to 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners, LLC. 
find us at healthcommunicationpartners.com.